But if you have Bibles, uh, go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John, chapter 21, uh, is where we find ourselves uh, this morning. Uh, Now, two weeks from today, two Sundays from today, uh, we're going to kick off a new series. And throughout this fall, between two weeks from now and Advent, we're going to tackle what I believe is one of the more difficult books in all of the Bible, which is the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're going to do that together on a couple fronts. We're going to spend 11 weeks of our worship services focused on walking through this Old Testament book. We're also going to sync up this fall our men's and our women's Bible studies. In the past, our our studies have focused on several different things, different books of the Bible, different topics. This fall, we're syncing it up so that all of our men's and women's studies are going to walk through Ecclesiastes together. Uh, And the hope of that being that we can really do a deep dive into this book, not just in our worship services on Sundays, but then in smaller pockets of men and women throughout the week to really learn and explore uh, what can be a very difficult book. If you know anything about Ecclesiastes, you know probably that it's intimidating. Uh, the meaninglessness of, of everything, the vanity of, of all of life, it's an intimidating book. But what I'm confident of uh, is that some of you will be surprised by how encouraging this book can be. Uh, Because when you take this uncomfortably honest look uh, at the realities of life and faith, as the author of Ecclesiastes does, as you strip away the the pleasantries uh, and the cliches and the pretense that sometimes so clouds our faith as Christians, we'll hope to, through studying Ecclesiastes together, see the very same thing that the author of Ecclesiastes does, which is this bedrock truth of the reality of God. When all else is stripped away, when all else is is vanity and meaninglessness, we'll see the bedrock that's left of the reality of God. So I hope that you will begin to anticipate excitedly uh, studying this book together as I've been excited about it now for for several months. Uh, And if you haven't already, do sign up for one of our men's or women's Bible studies, which will be going through Ecclesiastes as well. Uh, You can do that either today through our website or you can do that next week at our ministry kickoff. In the meantime, uh, we've got two of our American gods remaining, two of the seven deadly sins that we need to walk through. And this morning, as you've heard already, uh, we're going to look at the sin of envy. An author named Joe Rigney uh, writes this. He says, There's a long tradition of using vivid metaphors to describe various sins. For some reason, images of envy are especially grotesque. Envy is a green-eyed monster, a ravenous wolf, a beast with many heads. Envy is a gnawing worm, the rust of the heart, the malignant shriek of the shriveled soul. Envy chews on a venomous toad, drooling poison. Envy lies in wait and springs like a serpent when its prey is within range. Now, if you've looked at our gallery wall and seen the different installments that Sarah Drescher, an artist from Texas, put together for the Seven Deadly Sins, you'll notice that Envy, she's actually one of the few artists that goes a different direction with Envy. She goes more for the allure of it, the beauty that it appears to have. But many artists depict the sin of Envy grotesquely, and they do that, I think, that's my opinion, uh, because they really begin to perceive the toxicity of it. And they begin to perceive the potential destruction that envy can have along with its sister sins. So envy is something, and we've been considering this already a little bit as we began our liturgy this morning, it's something of a summary word for a variety of associated sins. Uh, There's envy, 
which is focused more on another person, who they are, what opportunities and gifts they have. There's jealousy, which is more focused on me, what I don't have that another person might. There's covetousness, which is more focused on possessions. Envy and jealousy are more people-oriented. Covetousness is more possession or object-oriented. And then, closely related to all of those things, there's rivalry, and there's resentment, and there's bitterness, and there's malice. Certain instances in Scripture put the grotesqueness of envy on full display. Cain and Abel, for example, Saul and David. But in our primary text today, uh, the envy is a lot more subtle. And here's my hope in looking at that with you. In this subtle example, maybe perhaps we will see how even if we are not in our lives avowed enemies with another person, uh, even if in our lives we are not a sibling murderer as Cain was, how we, we will hopefully today through this see how we are prone to the sin of envy and how much damage envy can and does bring to our pursuits of knowing and being known by Jesus. And so with that, I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 21, beginning in verse 15 and reading through verse 23. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. G Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him, and said, Lord, uh, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray, betray you? When Peter saw him, John, the apostle, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers and sisters that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would pour out upon us wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and our minds may be opened to receive all that leads to life and to holiness. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. At Liberty Church, uh, we talk a lot about our values, these three core values of worship, uh, community, and mercy. Uh, and by that, we mean and we celebrate that Jesus, through his finished work, frees us to love God, to love one another, and to love our neighbor. 
This morning, I want us to consider the siege, uh, the assault that envy is on all three of these things, worship, community, and mercy. So first, envy's assault on worship. We are, as human beings, made by God. We are made in the image of God. We are made for God. All of our lives are meant to be wholly devoted to him. When we talk about worship, we're talking about that. And we are meant to, at any given moment, be able to be conscious of what we are receiving from the hand of God. And we are to, at any given moment, be able to rejoice in what we have received and what we are receiving from God's hand. Envy is an assault on our worship because it turns this receiving, it turns this rejoicing into rivalry. So consider Peter here in John chapter 21. This is a a pivotal moment for the Apostle Peter in his life, in his relationship with Jesus. The last time that Peter gathered around a charcoal fire that that we're aware of is when Jesus was on trial. He was being beaten and he was being mocked. And despite Peter's good intentions, and despite Peter's promise that he would never turn away from Jesus, that he would follow Jesus into death, Peter huddled around that charcoal fire, and he denied Jesus three times. And if you're familiar with that instance in Scripture, you know that he didn't just deny him, he denied him. He denied him. He invoked curses upon himself. He damned himself, saying, I do not know him. And yet, it's from his most heinous, his most spectacular rejection of Jesus that flows this most spectacular restoration of Peter. So the latter, this instance in John 21, is a mirror of Peter's denial. It's a threefold restoration for a threefold denial. And Jesus asked Peter here to affirm his love and to affirm his devotion for Jesus three times. And he, as it does, when he denies him, with each successive one, it builds in its emotion to the point where it grieves Peter. And it says here in the Gospel of John that he says, Lord, you know everything. Of course you know that I love you. And then Jesus, repeating what he had said to Peter several years before on the shore, completes this restoration of Peter by saying, follow me. Again, follow me. To receive this forgiveness, to receive this restoration, has to be among one of the most worship-inducing, worship-inspiring instances of Peter's life. And some of us know this well and know this acutely, to have the ugliness, to have the darkness of our sin so exposed, and then to have the life imparting, the shame eradicating words of Jesus spoken over you into those very same things. If ever Peter tangibly tasted the grace of God, it's in this moment. It's in this moment. What an opportunity to receive from the hand of God, to rejoice in the grace of God. And yet instead, What does Peter do? He turns and he sees John and he envies him. And I so desperately hope that more time passed between the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20 than it appears because it does not appear like much time has passed there at all. Now, is this not what envy does in you and in me? It shortchanges and it distracts from incredible opportunities for us to worship. It assaults our worship. It tears our eyes off of the unfathomable grace of God and it focuses them in on ourselves. 
or it focuses them in comparison with other people. So forget the job that I have. Forget the gift it is from the hand of God. That person's is better. Forget the compensation I have, the salary that I make, the provision that is from the hand of God. That person makes more. Forget the family and friends that I have. The family and friends that that person has seem like better family and friends than I have. Forget the life, forget the grace that I have been given from God. I'd rather have whatever that person has over there. In Genesis chapter 4, Abel's offering, his worship, it's acceptable to God. It's accepted by God. And Cain's, in that very same moment, is rejected. But I don't know if you've read that story recently. Immediately afterward, God invites Cain to be a faithful worshiper. He says, bring your first fruits, and will I not accept your offering too? Now, does Cain do that? No. He rises up and he murders his brother. Why? Because envy assaults worship. And rather than return to God, even though God's inviting him to do so, rather than fix his eyes and his heart upon God in worship, he locks his spiteful attention. He fixes his eyes and his heart in a spiteful way on his brother. Now, Peter, of course, doesn't kill John in John 21, thankfully. He doesn't even say, if you notice, a disparaging word about John or to John. But in having just received this priceless gift of forgiveness and grace and restoration to follow Jesus, he misses the opportunity and the invitation to worship. So where in your life might envy be assaulting worship? Where might envy be stealing joy that is yours in Jesus and in the gifts that God has given you? Envy assaults our worship. Second, Envy's assault on community. It doesn't just lay siege to our worship, it lays siege to our relationships. Attempting to summarize envy, one author writes that envy involves comparison and criticizing and complaining. It involves ingratitude, it involves hatred. And the common denominator among all of that is that it's interpersonal. It's relational in a negative sense. So think about this. Envy requires other people. Envy requires other people, and then it corrupts the relationships that we're meant to experience with those other people. Occasionally, you and I might envy people uh, from afar. Celebrities, the rich and famous, people we read about. But much more often, we envy those who are in relational proximity to us. Envy attacks really close to home, in other words. We envy people who are in so many ways the most similar to us, but who have different gifts and different opportunities than we do. So think about that. If someone is different enough from you, if they've had such a different life than you have when it comes to socioeconomic status, or education, or race, or nationality, those are not the people that we are most often tempted to envy or to resent. Uh, if you're a business person, you don't tend to envy the award winner or the promotion getter in the field of medicine or the field of envy. You envy the person who's also in business who gets the accolades and who gets the promotion. That's their field, right? This is yours. You envy other people if you're a student in your major. You envy the other people in your workplace. You envy the other people in your neighborhood, in your school. You envy the other people in your own church. Which means 
which means that envy assaults the very relationships that God has placed us in, not the ones we observe from a distance. It assaults the very relationships God has placed us in as an ambassador of his love and his grace and his mercy. And as we think about the rhythms of grace we've looked at, it attacks relational pursuit that we're called to. Because who wants to pursue someone that you're harboring these ill feelings toward? And it also attacks the one anothering that we're called to. Because who is going to, as we read this morning in the scripture reading, who is going to serve one another or in humility count another person above myself when I'm consumed by this sense of angry inferiority to them? So rather than bringing life and encouragement, rather than sharpening us as relationships are meant to do in the kingdom of God, envy fuels this downward spiral of discontentment and disharmony and distance from the people that we're meant to be close to. Who are these men in John chapter 21? Peter and John are both apostles. But think about this. They're not just among the 70. They're not just among the 12. They're among the three. They are a part of the innermost circle of Jesus' friends. They are the ones who joined Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They are the ones who Jesus asked to draw aside with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So these aren't just apostles. This is Peter, the rock on whom Jesus will build his church. This is John, the beloved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And yet it's here, amongst two of the innermost three, where envy begins to emerge in Peter's heart. Proverbs 27, 4 says, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming. Who can stand before jealousy? Why? How could it possibly be worse than wrath or anger? It's because when, you, when we envy someone, we're not just harboring ill feelings toward them, but deep in our hearts and minds, we are moving that person from an example to an enemy. Throughout Scripture, uh, throughout the letters written by apostles like Peter, like John, like Paul, you will read and encounter this refrain, imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow the faithful example of men and women, of faithful men and women. So this is part of our discipleship as God's people, as Christians. One of the gifts that God gives us are people in our lives in close proximity to us that we look to as examples. And envy spoils the gift. It turns examples into enemies. And it takes what God has intended for our encouragement and it begins to perceive it as a threat. So we move in our hearts and minds from wanting to be like that example to competing with that example to wanting to replace or wanting to destroy that example. And thereby it erodes what God has placed in our lives for good. We think of biblical examples of this. Think about the difference between King Saul and David and then David and Jonathan. So under Saul's kingship, David delivers Israel from Goliath. He delivers Israel from the Philistines. But Saul cannot bring himself to rejoice in it. He gets this refrain stuck in his head that's being sung by the people of the city. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And he can't bring himself, he won't bring himself to the point of perceiving the blessing of God upon David and even looking to David as an example as a, of a man after God's own heart. 
And so what he does with that over and over again in his envy is he seeks to pin him to the wall with a spear. He seeks to kill him. Saul's son, Jonathan, on the other hand, embraces the blessing of God upon David. And even though it would be very natural for Jonathan to be threatened by David, right? he's the son of the king, he's the one that should be king apart from these plans of God that have changed. Even though it would be natural that, that David and not he will be the next king of Israel, Jonathan and David have what is possibly the best friendship illustrated for us in all of Scripture. And it's among two men who by all human measures should be rivals. So where envy exists, it assaults and it destroys relationships. But where envy is put to death, relationships that would otherwise be impossible can flourish and can thrive. Where is envy assaulting relationships in your life? If there are broken relationships in your life, and for many of us, that's the case most of the time. Family, with friends, in your work, at school, in your neighborhood. Where relationships are broken in your life, might envy be at the root of that? Have you considered that? Have you thought about that angle? Might envy be at the root of that? Are you envying another person's gifts or opportunities or their, their station or their season in life? Are you coveting what they own, wishing it was yours? And maybe, and here's the deceitfulness and the, the, warped, the warped nature of sin, maybe it began as following an example of someone that you admire, but then envy somewhere along the way took root and it became no longer about imitating their faithfulness, but it became about how you rank, how you are perceived in relation to that person. And now they have become, at a heart level for you, an enemy, a threat. Don't let envy tear down what God has truly placed in your life for good. Third, envy's assault on mercy. I've considered its assault on worship and community. Let's think about how it assaults mercy. When we use the word mercy, uh, at Liberty Church, it refers to this broad pursuit of loving our neighbor. Uh, so we share the good news of Jesus' gospel in the ways that we live, and the ways that we speak, in the ways that we serve. And this really is our mission as the people of God in the world. We are sent out by Jesus to continue the very work that he did during his life and ministry on the earth. John chapter 21 is a sending passage. It's a sending passage. He's sending Peter out. He's saying, follow me again. You're going to go where I lead. But as I'm sure it stood out to you as we read it, the sendings in this passage are not identical. They're not identical. Peter and John have different callings. They have different sendings. Namely, Peter is sent to die and John is sent to live. Peter is sent to die. John is sent to live. Now, Peter's is really obvious because it's right there in the text. Jesus sends him to feed and tend the sheep, to lead the early church. And Jesus sends Peter with a measure and an extension of his own care, his own authority for the people of God. But Jesus gets even more specific in this text. He tells Peter that he's going to die in the process. Peter, you're going to die in the process of doing that. Not immediately, but eventually, 
You're going to stretch out your hands and be carried where you do not want to go. It's a reference from Jesus to crucifixion. He's telling Peter here, not only that he's going to die in the process, but how he is going to die. The Bible doesn't record for us the end of the lives of the apostles with the exception of James. The rest of them are left to early church history. But the nearly unquestioned historical record is that Peter was crucified in Rome under Emperor Nero in the mid-60s A.D. Uh, There's one line of tradition that says Peter was crucified upside down, that he did not consider himself worthy to die in exactly the same way that Jesus did, so he asked to be crucified upside down. Regardless, as Jesus sends Peter, he tells him that the way he's going to glorify God is to die a martyr's death. He tells him, hey, Peter, remember that past promise you made that you would follow me into death? You failed on it the first time. You denied me three times, but you will make good on that promise. Now let's go. Follow me. But what about John? But what about John? That's the question on Peter's mind. He turns around and he sees John hanging out within earshot of this conversation and perhaps a little bit freaked out, as is understandable. Like, what did I just sign up for? Or perhaps maybe basking in the honor it is to be commissioned by Jesus with such an honorable thing. Maybe some of both. Maybe he's simultaneously freaked out and a little bit prideful. But he immediately wants to know, what about him? What about John? As it turns out, John's sending is very different than Peter's. Peter is sent to die. John is sent to live. And it's harder to know exactly what happened to the Apostle John, but the consistent witness of the early church is that he lived to be a very old man, dying sometime around 95 or 100 AD, which would put him in the ballpark of about 100 years old. He didn't live as some suspect that he would until Jesus' second coming, so he's not still alive somewhere hiding out today. John's not still like in incognito, like in South America or something like that. Nonetheless, That means from this moment on the shore, from this moment, these two men are on this beach. John is going to live twice as long as Peter is. And in fact, by the time that John writes these words down, by the time John records this gospel, Peter has been dead for at least a decade and probably more than 20 years. Their lives, their futures are drastically different. One scholar sums it up like this. Peter would be the shepherd, John the seer. Peter the preacher, John the penman. Peter the foundational witness, John the faithful writer. Peter would die in the agony and passion of martyrdom. John would live on to a great age. So this moment on the beach is pivotal for Peter in more ways than one. The envy, the comparison that surfaces about the specific mission that he's called into as opposed to John's has the potential to undermine the pursuit of the rest of these men's lives. It can make them rivals instead of allies and co-laborers in the gospel. It can lead them to shrink back, to avoid the specific calling they've been given from Jesus. It can corrupt their motive in that mission. Like, will Peter be in this truly for the glory of God and the good of the souls of other men and women? Or will he be in it to out-serve John, to out-apostle John? And if you think that's far-fetched for Peter, And John, because they're apostles, remember, they competed with each other all the time during Jesus' life and ministry. They argued about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, who was going to sit next to Jesus, who was going to sit at his right hand. 
We even see their disposition to rivalry in the chapter before this in the resurrection. They hear the report of the empty tomb and John writes in John chapter 20 that they run to the empty tomb, but he can't just leave it at that. He says, and I got there first. (laughs) We ran to the tomb. Peter's not too fast. I beat him there. And then it says, Peter went in first. It's like you can hear them arguing like, well, I got there first. Well, I went in first. They are always jockeying for position. They always want that position with Jesus and and in the work Jesus has given to to them to do. We are prone to to this very thing. We are prone to envy the specific calling, the specific opportunities given to another person. We're prone to be envious of their effectiveness in doing so. That happens individually. We envy specific individual people. And when it comes to mercy and ministry, I have to constantly check my own heart for being envious of other church planters, other pastors, for how effective they are in church planting ministry or preaching or leadership or the variety of other things that fall on my plate. It also happens corporately as a church family. Do we as a church see other faithful churches, churches that proclaim the worth of Jesus, that proclaim salvation in the name of Jesus alone, do we see them as allies or do we see them as enemies? Are we, God forbid, in competition with other churches to try to have the best programs or the most people or being in somehow rivalry with other churches in our area? So Jesus' response to Peter here It's a hinge moment in history. And it's also a hinge moment in our own paradigm for carrying out the mission of God. And Jesus here, in a few simple words, unlocks an incredible depth of freedom as we think about mercy and mission and ministry. He says in verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter, that's not your concern. Maybe John will die a martyr's death too. Maybe he'll never die. Maybe he'll live all the way to my second coming. Either way, it's not your concern. Get your eyes, get your attention off of him and get it on to me. You follow me. And Peter is transformed by this. Not only through, of course, the restoration and forgiveness that has come from Jesus in the first half of this passage, but transformed by Jesus' rebuke of his envy and the rivalry in his heart. So the man who asks in this passage, what about him? Is the one who writes, as we read in our words of encouragement today in 1 Peter 2, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's transformed into this man, not perfectly, but he grows immensely between these two times. Put away all that backward garbage, grow up into maturity. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that's enough. So crave that pure spiritual milk. Stop competing with others. Stop worrying about how their life and their calling and their ministry is different than yours. And this church is the remedy to envy. This is the antidote to the poison that is drooled out by that grotesque monster of envy. To fix your eyes not 
on the differences of gifting and opportunity and calling, but to fix your eyes on Jesus and only on Jesus. By circumstance, the Apostle Paul had even more potential for envy among the apostles. He's born after the rest of them. Jesus doesn't appear to him until later. He calls himself the least of the apostles. He says he's not worthy to be called an apostle because his past life was to persecute the church of God. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul is free from envy because he defines his life not by his differences with the other apostles. He defines his life by the grace of God. And you and I are likewise defined by the grace of God, not in relation to others. And through Jesus' life, through his death, through his resurrection, God has lavished his grace upon us. Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There is no scarcity to the grace of God. There's enough for you. And simultaneously, there's enough for every other person that you're in relationship with that you might be tempted to be in rivalry with. And so we can, because of that, rejoice in the grace of God to every single other person we meet and rejoice in the grace of God to us. And if we would see, if we would believe that we are defined by the grace of God, it would truly reinvigorate our pursuit of worship. We wouldn't be robbed of these moments to find joy in Jesus to receive from his hand by looking at someone else. It would reinvigorate our worship as our eyes are fixed on him. It would deepen, it would heal our experience of community. It would repair and restore relationships. It would give us better and more thriving relationships. And it would fuel our pursuit of mercy. We would be able to carry different callings, different specific outworkings of the ministries and the mercies of God in the world to which God has called us without looking at other people and being envious. So may we, church, fix our eyes on Jesus. And regardless of what another person's life looks like in comparison to our own, may you this morning hear and believe the very words of Jesus. What is that to you? You follow me. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, forgive us for fixing our eyes in the wrong place on ourselves or on the people around us. Pray this morning you would give us by your Spirit's power a transfixed gaze on you and that you have lavished your grace upon us regardless of the ways like Peter that we deny you and reject and run from you. You restore us and that we would be able to, rejoicing in that grace, long for other people to experience the same in our own, rejoice when they do and rejoice in the ways you call us in different specific ways into this world that you love. We are, and we need this paradigm renewed constantly, Lord. We are defined by nothing except your grace. And so as we come to a table that is the picture, the tangible demonstration of your grace to us in Jesus, renew us in it, restore us in it, redefine our identity, redefine our lives in the grace you have lavished upon us through Christ. 
And may it free us from envy. May it free us into an infinitely better pursuit of worship and community and mercy. I pray this in your name. Amen.